good to be back with you this week. Um, as Ben said earlier, I was up in Santa Barbara last weekend, uh, and I had the opportunity to preach at Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara, and that is the church that uh, sent us and has supported us and has prayed for us since this uh, this church plant. And so, uh, as you could imagine, you know they were really thrilled to have us back there. It was our first first Sunday back since the start of this church, and I got to preach on Sunday and give them a report of what God's doing among us here, which um, has been exciting. And uh, but I'll tell you, man. I'm just glad to be back. I love being here. As Ben said, you know, I really do feel that sense that I don't want to miss a moment of what God is doing here in this church. And so being back with you guys on Sunday uh, is really fun. However, I will say this, something that really uh, was so pleasing and so encouraging to see is that uh, the fact that Leah and I were able to go away on a Sunday and know that this church thrives with or without us here because this is ultimately Jesus's church amen this isn't this isn't our this isn't my church this is Jesus's church and there are so many servant leaders in this church already who have risen up and are so faithful so thank you to Ben Caswell preaching last Sunday great message yeah and just all of our all of our leadership here we're so thankful for um, what God's doing among us and so um, if you're interested in hearing that teaching I gave, what's great about it is I, I gave a little bit of a backstory of what brought us to Santa, or from Santa Barbara to Palos Verdes and how this church even got started in the first place. And if you, if you haven't heard that backstory, I encourage you to go check it out. It's on our website, and you can listen to that there. But uh, today we're going to continue on, on in Mark, right where Pastor Ben Kai left off last week. So open your Bible to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 30 to 41. And before we get into it, I've got one more announcement, which is that we are having a boy, a little baby boy. Yeah, super exciting. So we launched one of those confetti cannons in a park, and they're like, let's get out of here. <laughs> it was like, those things are loud and messy. Glad I didn't do it in my house. We would have found confetti for like three months. So uh, anyways, we are in Mark chapter 9. Uh, with your Bibles open, verse 30 to 41, let me pray, and then we'll get right into it. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. We pray that today we would behold wondrous things from your word, as you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive it. So Lord, speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So the, the events that take place in our text today... Um, they happen over like three parts, and yet together they speak about how Jesus, with his disciples, is showing them that Jesus is a servant of all. And as his disciples, if we have denied ourselves, if we've taken up our cross to follow him, then we will follow the pattern of Jesus. And the pattern of Jesus is to be a servant, to take that low and that humble position, which, right, is so often contrary to the world and so contrary to what our flesh desires. And yet what we understand from the scriptures is that to be a servant is the great value of the kingdom of God. That if we are citizens of God's kingdom, then we will be servants just like our Lord Jesus, and that's what the scriptures are going to show us today. So 
Look with me at the first part, verses 30 to 32, where we read, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, contextually, we should know by now that a clear transition has happened in the Gospel of Mark. Um, You remember, as we've been through Mark, that the popularity of Jesus was on the rise, and, and it has already peaked. You know, his teachings and his miracles put him in this position where people were coming by the droves to be near Jesus, to see him, and to hear what he had to teach. And so Jesus has already made quite the splash with his ministry, you know. And yet we read in verse 30 that Jesus passed through Galilee. And Galilee, as you know, was the place where Jesus did quite a bit of ministry. Um, it was the place where the crowds were just so thick. I mean, that was, that was where a lot of the miracles took place. And yet it says he was passing through it. And the reason why is because he is now wanting to focus on the preparation of his 12 immediate disciples. It goes on to say in verse 30 that he did not want anyone to know that he was passing through. See, Jesus was avoiding any unnecessary distraction from the ultimate purpose for why he came. And what is that? Jesus came in order to give his life as a ransom for sin. And so, with his coming death and resurrection, which he just foretold, Jesus is wanting to impress real deeply into the hearts and the minds of his disciples what's going to happen to him. And he wants them to know that life would come through death and that salvation would come through sacrifice. And so look at verse 31 where it says, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So that's the second time now that Jesus has plainly foretold of his death and resurrection. We saw the first time back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And we're going to see it again a third time in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And each time, what Jesus does is he gives more detail as to what is going to happen to him, how he is going to be killed, and how he will rise from the dead. And so remember, this is now Jesus' clear focus. He's purposefully implanting this truth into the hearts and the minds of his disciples. Jesus wants his followers to know that he is going to suffer and be rejected and killed, but that he would rise from the dead. Why? Why is that? And I'm going to wait for that card to pass because I really want this deeply implanted into the hearts and minds of you, which is that the fact that Jesus suffered and rejected and was killed and rose again That is the gospel. That is the foundation of our belief. And 
and not only the foundation of our belief, but the actual means by which Jesus obtained salvation for us. And so miracles were great. Jesus had a lot of wonderful teachings, but he ultimately wanted them to know about how he would give himself as a sinless sacrifice, that by his blood, we would be cleansed of our sins, that by his death, we could be united in his death by dying to our sin, that by his resurrection, we could be united in his life by being raised with Christ both now and for eternity. And so that's the good news. That's the gospel that Jesus is clearly focused on throughout the rest of the gospel of Mark. And you know, with Good Friday and Easter coming just around the corner, we as a church are going to give really special focus and attention to these truths. On Good Friday, we're going to remember what Jesus did upon the cross and what that work accomplished. And and through the teaching, which uh, our pastors are going to do kind of like a three-part message and our young adults are going to be leading worship. We're going to be talking from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. So join us on Good Friday at 7 o'clock, and we're meeting inside, which is awesome. And then, three days later, because Jesus didn't stay dead but rose from the dead, we're going to celebrate the life that we have in Jesus, the resurrection hope, here on Easter Sunday. We're going to gather in this parking lot. We're going to rent a bunch of extra chairs because we have this expectation that you as believers are going to be inviting people to gather to hear the hope of Jesus. Because Jesus is alive and because this is good news, we're going to be telling people about it because, you know, Easter is one of those days out of the year where uh, somebody will probably receive your invitation to come to church with you. And so be inviting people. I really do encourage you to take a stack of three or five flyers and even just keep them in your car. That's what I do. And at any moment, I have an opportunity to share my faith and to invite somebody to church. I'll do that. And so the death of Jesus upon the cross and the resurrection of Jesus three days later, those are the distilled truths of the gospel. See, there's no good news without the cross, and there's no good news without the resurrection. And if you believe this truth, these historical facts of Jesus, I was just talking to Mimi. I mean, this happened in real time and space in Israel. Jesus died upon a cross, and three days later, he rose from the dead. You can go and see that the tomb is empty. And what we have to understand is is that if we believe these facts, these historical facts, that's great. But have we put our faith in them? And if you put your faith in them, then it means that you will demonstrate that faith by baptism. And that's why the following week, we're going to have our first baptism service as a church. And uh, before any of you gets baptized, my daughter, Kennedy, has been wanting to be baptized for a couple years now. I've waited and waited because I want it to be her faith. She's going to be the first person to be baptized at Calvary Chapel Palace Verde. And so that was... uh, that was my word to her when we planted this church, and she's, she's excited about it. So, I have a B right on my notes right here. That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> um, now, listen, what, what is baptism? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to fill up a little kind of kiddie pool thing, and we're going to dunk you in it. That, that's the act of it, but what does it mean? 
See, baptism, what it means is when you go down into the water, you are identifying with Jesus in his death. Just as Jesus went into the grave, you, in your sin, you are dying to self. You are going into the grave and dying with Jesus. You're united in his death. And then when you come up out of the water, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so too you are identifying with Jesus in his resurrection, that you are alive because of Jesus. See, it's an outward sign of an inward change that God has made in you. And so if you want to be baptized, let us know. Really, if you haven't been baptized, sign up today. You can do it at the welcome table or online. Um, And you might be thinking, wow, this message sounds like a bunch of announcements. Uh, But it really is. The days that come up on this calendar leading uh, as a church with Good Friday and Easter Sunday and, and to have a church baptism These are the fundamental actions of our Christian faith that testify of the gospel. And that's why we do these things. And so continuing on now, verse 32, it says, But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, I find this to be a tragic thing to read. It's one thing to not understand what Jesus is saying, and Jesus knew that the disciples were kind of slow to get things. That's why he often told them three different times uh, what he was going to do. He would foretell his death and resurrection three times. He needed to repeat his works and his words because, let's be honest, how often do you and I get it right on the first time with God? We don't. God is patient when we don't understand. He's merciful about the things that we don't understand. However. We are accountable for the things that we do understand. I hope you know that. It's, it's one thing to not fully understand, and, and that might be you right now. You don't have all the answers yet. And, and there's still a lot of unknowns when it comes to having a relationship with God through Jesus, and that's okay. Know that Jesus is patient with you and that he's wanting to reveal himself to you. Um, what you do need to do is you need to take what you do know because you're responsible to do something with that and then bring that to Jesus and he will increase your understanding. See, the tragic part is not that they didn't have understanding. The tragic part is that they didn't ask him to help their understanding because they were afraid to ask him. And that's the part that's not good. Because here's a few things that you can understand about God. God is love. God is patient. God is kind. He is understanding. The issue isn't so much as the disciples lacked understanding. The issue was that they were afraid to ask Jesus when they didn't understand because they were afraid of him. They were blinded from seeing the goodness and the kindness and the patience of God because the disciples were still self-focused rather than self-denying and they were not seeing the real Jesus because the real Jesus is approachable. See, listen, if, if we're afraid of Jesus, if we're afraid to ask him for greater understanding, well then, that fear is actually only gonna lead you more into misunderstanding God. You get what I mean? And look, I I know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I know that God is also holy and just and that he has righteous anger. 
um, I'm not talking about that fear. I'm, I'm talking about, if I could use these words, I'm talking about the bad kind of fear in the Bible. The fear that cripples and stifles Christians from growing because, quite frankly, they're afraid of God. They're afraid of how he might correct them. And usually the reason for that is because they're too self-focused. Oftentimes people think about what they don't know and how much they've missed the mark and how much they don't understand. But what they're missing is that Jesus is there right in front of them to help and to give them understanding. And so the disciples, the disciples could have understood if they just had simply not been afraid of Jesus. But that's what sin and self-focus does is it gets you afraid of God rather than denying self, receiving his love, and focusing on what Jesus has done for you, not what you can do for him. Well, continuing on, let's look in our Bible at verses 30 to 37. It says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus and the disciples are now on their way back to Capernaum. Capernaum was sort of home base for Jesus and the disciples. And while they were on the way back from this ministry trip, you know, Jesus is at the head of the pack. The disciples are following close behind. And behind Jesus, the disciples are doing what? They are arguing. They're having this silly and petty argument about who is the greatest. And notice that Jesus doesn't immediately confront the instance. What I find in the scriptures is that Jesus often avoided arguments. But later on, once they got to the house, he calls the disciples to himself. And Jesus is going to correct them. But notice, again, that the way Jesus corrects us, because I want to get out of the hearts of Christians this fear, this unhealthy fear of Jesus. When Jesus corrects us, he gathers us to himself. Never forget who you are being called to when you need to hear the hard things. Never forget who it is that disciplines and corrects his children. It is one who is patient and loving and gentle who calls us to himself and then corrects us. He doesn't say, fix yourself and then you can come to me. He says, come to me and then we will fix you. Amen? So gathered around Jesus, what were they discussing along the way? That's his question for them. And notice they all kept silence because they knew they were like a bunch of little kids that just got caught doing wrong. But now around Jesus, he is going to show them a better way. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And I'm going to tell you right now <laughs> that each of you individually has to sit with that text. You know, I can exposit it. I can explain it to you. But you need to allow these words to examine your own life and to see if you are living with that kingdom of value. 
I had to do that in my own life this week. I had to sit with this text this week and examine my own life. And I'll tell you what, it was humbling. It was humbling because the way of Jesus in this kingdom principle, which is to be last of all and a servant of all, goes counter to everything that this world promotes. And it goes totally against what my flesh desires. It goes totally against it. And I agree intellectually with servant leadership. I get the biblical principle that if I want to be great in the kingdom of God, then I must be last of all and a servant of all. I live with that desire for my life, but time and time again, I miss the mark because what happens is my own selfish desire rises up within me and I try to make myself great. Can anyone relate? Or am I the only one here who struggles with that? As a disciple of Jesus, I am continually learning what it means to be last of all and a servant of all. And it is a lifelong pursuit. And if I ever think that I am humble enough, like I've somehow arrived at humility, all I have to do is think about the heights from which Jesus came down to the depths of the earth. How he left heaven's throne to die upon a cross And then I can just simply think to myself, I can still go lower. We can always go lower. And look, it's not simply our actions of service, though those are good, that God is looking for. He is also looking for the heart and the motivation of our service. Did you know that you can do all kinds of works of outward service, and yet inside you are puffed up with pride? Let me give you an example. It's kind of a silly one, but, you know, sometimes when food is being served, say like a big gathering, and, you know, you got the buffet line of food, and I usually go last, you know, and I sometimes jokingly will say, you know, the first will be last and the last will be first. And people are always trying to say, no, you go, go ahead. And I'm like, no, you go, you go, right? Because I want to go last. Why do I want to go last? Well, the reason I go last is because usually the people that go through at the front of the line, you know, they take just a little bit so that at the end there's like all the amount that you can take that you want. And because everybody else has already been served, I can take as much as I want. And usually it plays out well unless there's guacamole involved and then it just never does. Um, And and so I, I get to the to the line, and I'm last, and you know, the first will be last, and the last will be first, but really, uh, that's not what Jesus is teaching. It's not so that I could benefit from it. it. It truly is that if we are serving, we're not having any expectation of return for ourselves. Do you serve if no one says thank you? Do you serve if no one sees you? Do you serve like Jesus served, where he uh, got down and washed his disciples' feet, where he cared for the least among them, where he ultimately died on the, on the cross. As Philippians 2.5 says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. That he went all the way to the cross in his service to us. Amen? We'll look at verse 36 and 37. He took a child and put the child in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms... He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time on this portion here, 
But simply to say this is that children are living illustrations of what it means to serve. If you have children, you know this. Continually before me, I have my children demonstrating to me what it's like to humble myself. And if you've forgotten or you want to learn, Leah's accepting children's ministry applications. You know, nothing teaches you more about God and the type of service that he looks for than to give up a Sunday being in the main service to go and spend with those little ones that love Jesus. So thankful for, for our servants in there who, who faithfully um, lead our little ones to Jesus. And so, look, this is shaking things up for the disciples. This is turning their world upside down because this is paradoxical. This is contrary to everything that they've been thought and taught in the world. And yet this is the way of the kingdom of God. And if you notice that any time Jesus speaks of his death and coming resurrection, the disciples get into this argument again. They're always arguing about who's the greatest after Jesus says he's going away. Why? Because they're thinking somebody needs to take Jesus' place. And if somebody's going to take Jesus' place, who's the greatest that can take his place? So maybe they're thinking, well, we need somebody who has a lot of money. Well, that would be Matthew, the tax collector. He must be the greatest. Or, or maybe we need somebody who's more political. You know, if we're really going to overthrow Rome and all this stuff, we need somebody political. So Simon the Zealot, he steps forward. I'm the greatest. Oh, but we, we need somebody with big and bold personalities. And so James and John, the sons of thunder, those guys can dominate. They're the greatest. Well, we actually, we need somebody who's more likable. So somebody who's gentle, like Andrew. Andrew's a gatherer. Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus. But, but, but wait, we need a talker. We need somebody who could talk a good talk. So, so we need Peter to step up. He's the greatest. And here they are, these 12 disciples, all arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Because in the kingdom of God, and therefore in the church, greatness is not found in money, politics, personality, likability, or even being a good speaker. Greatness comes when you take the lowest position in God's kingdom. Amen? If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be great, you must be a servant of all. And so, in this final portion, as we wrap up here, John, one of the disciples, hears this. And it seems to bring into his memory this thing that had recently happened. Where he saw this guy along the way who was casting out demons in Jesus' name and he told him to stop. And John's trying to figure out whether he did the right thing or not. He's at least having some sense of conviction that he wants to be a servant. And so this is good. He asked Jesus about this in verse 38 to 40, John said to him, teacher, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterward uh, speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. 
So you know the situation then. John is uh, one of the disciples. He sees this guy. They tell him to stop because he's using the name of Jesus, which speaks of his authority and his power. And yet, because he's not one of them, one of the followers, one of the 12, he stops him. So what type of attitude are we seeing here? What are we seeing in the hearts of the disciples that Jesus here shoots down and says, don't do that. It is this attitude of sectarianism. You'll find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul really lays out this attitude that's found often in the church and is really the core of so many other issues. If you look at how 1 Corinthians was written, it starts by talking about how their issues all sprang from division among the church. And sectarianism is this attitude that says, if you're not in our group, if you're not part of our tribe or our sect, might I even say, if you're not in our denomination, then you, have, you don't have this exclusive right to ministry, you know. And, and we sometimes might even reject others and say even wanting to forbid them to stop, or at least there's some sense of competition, right? Let's think about this guy who was casting out demons in Jesus's name. He was a believer, we could uh, assume, because he knew the name of Jesus. He understood there was power and authority of it in it. Maybe there was some elementary understanding of who Jesus was, but at least we could say he knew Jesus. He was effective. Seems from the text that the guy was having success in which, here's a little side note, which is that the disciples had just failed to cast out a demon and they had to have Jesus step in. And remember, Jesus said last week that this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. So, so they just were unsuccessful in casting out a demon. And now they're seeing this other guy who's being effective and he's having success, which tells me this is that there's often a danger in criticizing those who have had success in things that we ourselves have been unsuccessful in. You know what it means. It's called envy, jealousy. Then he was independent. The guy was not part of the core ministry team. He wasn't following us. Maybe it was something about the way that he ministered that they didn't like. And we can understand that the disciples were zealous for the name of Jesus. They wanted to make sure that his name wasn't being misrepresented. I can understand that. But if this guy is casting out demons in Jesus' name, then let him cast out demons. Because he had the right belief, he had the right results, but the issue was that he wasn't part of the right group. And so they stopped him. How many ways does ministry get stopped today, or at least hindered, because of this idea that you're not part of our group. So while churches or theological camps are arguing about who's the greatest, there are people in this world who are lost and oppressed by demons and are not being delivered because as believers, we are too busy squabbling about our differences and arguing about greatness. See, Satan is the enemy not other Christians that look different from you. How many more demons do you think would have been cast out that day if instead of telling the guy to stop, the disciples said, we see what you're doing. Can we join you and go defeat works of darkness together? Think of how many more 
deliverances would have happened that day had there been unity, which this is the principle, you guys, is that in our sinful nature, we are far better at dividing than we are at uniting. We've seen it in the last few years. We are so good at division, and yet in the kingdom of God, there is to be unity, and it can only happen by the Spirit of God as we crucify our flesh. Because Jesus prayed in John 17 that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. How's the world going to believe in Jesus lest the church finds unity in the Spirit? When we spend our days arguing about who's the greatest, we will not be effective and we will not fulfill God's desire for unity. And so as a church, I'm just going to say this. As a leadership, we're going to say this, is that we may have differences in secondary doctrines. We may have differences of philosophies of ministries, and our methods might look different than other churches in this region. But if churches across this region are faithfully teaching the word of God, preaching Jesus and him crucified and risen, and they're reaching the lost and the broken in this region, then listen, we have unity with them. And we are all putting points on the same scoreboard. We are all on the same team. And if the church realizes that the church down the street is not the enemy, then maybe together we would do more work against the real enemy, who is Satan. So I absolutely love this church. I love the way we do things. I believe that this church has been fruitful and God-glorifying, but I hope that together as a local church, we understand that people do get saved and discipled in other churches. And we celebrate this. And I found this anonymous quote, and I'll end with this, better a thousand times that the work should be done by other hands than not done at all. We don't throw discernment out the door because there are churches that call themselves churches, but they don't belong to Jesus. They do not preach the gospel. And so we don't throw discernment out the door. We're not foolish. And we don't, we don't forsake gospel integrity for unity. We need that. We need gospel integrity. We need to know that Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son, that he died and was buried and rose again, that he's Lord and Savior, that his authority is revealed in the authority of Scripture. But Jesus said in Mark 9, 39 through 40, do not forbid him for no one who works a miracle in my name could soon afterwards speak evil of me. He who is not against us is on our side. He then goes on to say that if anyone gives a cold drink of water, which sounds really refreshing right now, I'm going to go get one of those water bottles over there. The simplest act done in Jesus' name you will by no means lose your reward. We've heard a lot today. It's been a little bit of a fire hose as we've looked at these three parts of the fundamental truths of the gospel. Jesus died and was buried and rose from the dead, which flows into that we take that same position of taking the lowest and humblest place and we become servants of all if we want to be great in the kingdom of God. And that flowing out of that, there must be unity in the spirit among God's people 
if we're ever going to do any lasting and fruitful work for the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. God, we ask for a refreshing work of your spirit, Lord, to convict us where we need to be convicted and just reminded, Lord, that when we are corrected and maybe some of us here need to be corrected for arguing about who's great and who's not great and puffing ourselves up with pride. And today we realize lower still can I go. Lord, as you draw us to yourself, I pray we would all come to you not in fear and not in silence, but boldly in confession to say, Jesus, I see you and I want to be more like you. Help us to do that as we crucify our flesh and as you pour out your spirit upon us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.